Hello and welcome to today's podcast, which is part of Osborne Clark's series on the key developments and challenges affecting the use of restructuring plans as an alternative to insolvency. My name is Sam Furs and I'm an Associate Solicitor in Osborne Clark's restructuring and insolvency team. And today's podcast focuses on the use of and approach to valuation evidence in restructuring plans. I'm very pleased to be joined by Douglas Hawthorne, a partner in Osborne Clark's restructuring and insolvency team, as well as Jim Davies, a partner in the financial advisory team at FRP Advisory, who has provided valuation evidence on a number of restructuring plans which we have seen to date. So Jim, thanks very much for joining us. And perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about your background, the work of the valuation team at FRP Advisory, including your restructuring plan experience to date. Yeah, of course. Morning, Sam. Morning, Doug. Nice, nice to see you. And um, thanks for inviting me to, to, to join this conversation. Very happy to be involved. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I joined FRP a couple of years ago, having spent several years in the valuation teams of both EY and uh, A&M. And my remit here, FRP, is to build out essentially a full service valuation offering. Um, we've had a really interesting variety of work over the last couple of years. So FRP has got to focus on UK mid-market advisory, really, which is great because it covers a huge variety of businesses. And our, our client base's evaluation practice goes from small companies, you know, startups and SMEs right through to right through the mid-market through to multinational public companies. Um, essentially, what we provide is independent valuations can be in the context of M&A transactions, disputes, restructuring situations and for governance type purposes. Um, and you mentioned restructuring plans, and that's what we're we're talking about today. And yeah, that's an area where we've, we've had quite a strong focus recently. We've conducted the valuation analysis for, I think, four of the last six, maybe, RPs that have been sanctioned. So that's been a bit of a focus area, yeah. Okay, good. And and Jim, tell me, at what stage of the restructuring plan process would the valued valuation team get involved? Or, or maybe what I should have said is, at, at what stage of the process would you like uh, to be get involved? Um, in, in, yeah, in the and there, there can be a difference there, certainly, Doug. Um, <laughs> I think before answering that, it's probably helpful to explain the role the valuation plays in the wider process. So there's this key notion within a restructuring plan, which is that the proposed financial restructuring that's put forward is in the best interest of the, the creditors of the business, i.e. there's no better option out there that would lead to a better outcome. And an outcome essentially meaning a better recovery on the outstanding balances owed by the company to the creditors. And in order to demonstrate that the RP is the right option, the most, what's deemed to be the most likely alternative scenario, which, which is called the relevant alternative, is first needs to be established uh, and then valued. Um, now the alternative, so it's the, the most likely outcome in the absence of an RP, i.e. if the RP is not sanctioned, what's most likely to occur? Maybe a liquidation, distress sale, could be a pre-pack or possibly a more going concern, going concern type solution. Um, the first stage is establishing it, second stage is valuing it. So the valuer, needless to say, comes in at stage two to prepare the valuation, but is often also involved in the first stage of the process of determining what the appropriate alternative actually is. Um, because determining the alternative is also in itself a question of value. And that's because really, you know, all things being equal, the right alternative should be the one with maximum value. So in some instances, you know, particularly where it's not clear cut or a number of alternatives are feasible or possible. The valuation thinking or sometimes detailed analysis needs to be considered for potentially several different alternatives in order to determine which one's the, the right one and the most valuable. 
Yes, that's really useful. Thank you. And so you've talked about the two stage process, um, but I guess what we quite often see is that there's an impending deadline, usually where the plan company is just simply going to run out of cash if it doesn't get a, a plan away before a certain date. How long can that valuation process take? And I guess what steps can be taken if there are time constraints to ensure that that um, to ensure that reliable valuation can be produced in the time frame? Yeah, I mean, the, the time frame, um, like you say, Sam, there's a few things involved. And, and really, one of them, the key ones is, um, you know, it's dictated by the company's liquidity need, as you say. So, you know, how many weeks or, you know, maybe months has the business got before it will be cash flow insolvent? And then how far in advance of that, you know, in advance of that like, possible cliff edge, is the company taking advice and establishing options? And that that varies on the, um, you know, from a valuer's perspective, it's, it's always one of those situations where you'd like to have, um, you know, as much time as you need. So there's a, there's a couple of questions there. One is, you know, how long does the work process generally take to conduct a piece of work that's thorough enough um, to support the exercise? Um, you're able to do all of the sort of ana analysis and benchmarking you want to, but it, you know, naturally comes down to at what stage the valuer is appointed. Um, and that's, a, you know, that's essentially a function of um, how far in advance of the, the process the company's taking advice, um, how much preparation there is. But ultimately, it varies case by case. Um, the prep can be, and you guys probably know better than me, but it can go from short and sharp through to long and potentially quite drawn out. Um, look, earlier the value is involved, the better. Um, in the planning phase, it can be quite light touch without incurring much cost. And then when you go into the valuation exercise, that's where the sort of heavy lifting happens. I think you, you know, as a very high level rule, you probably want to give yourself a month to do the valuation work once the um, relevant alternative has been established. But it's it varies. It's, it's, it's a kind of a moving and slightly fluid process. So things can be fast tracked and fast forward into shorter timeframes if necessary, albeit you'd always rather have the um the, the, the time that you'd really like yeah very clear so talking a little bit more about i suppose the the heavy lifting part of it i'd be interested to know what approach you take when you're dealing with the figures information data provided by the company proposing the plan bearing in mind that the court will often seek to really scrutinize and test those figures and the assumptions which are provided and i suppose i'm particularly conscious um you know from our work working with boards of directors, management, who are spinning an awful lot of plates, I suppose. And um, I wonder if sometimes getting the data to you um, might feel like a bit of an afterthought. Uh, that's not to suggest for me, of course, that's not really important work, but I just wonder how you, you go about doing that and making sure you've got everything to produce a uh, reliable valuation, which you're, you're comfortable with and you're comfortable is going to stand up to scrutiny. Yeah, look, that's, that is really, that's always one of the challenges. Um, I think, you know, Getting the right information, the most up-to-date information, um, is is what you need. Um, management, as you say, in these situations, are always um, stretched. Uh, there's a lot going on. They've got different kind of advisory angles they need to deal with. They're still running the business, and you know, needless to say, the business will be in in a, a state where it needs a lot of attention because the you know you know by definition it will be in a in a relatively distressed situation. So it's always challenging. Um, as a valuer, you You've, you've, you've got to make sure there's independence from the company in the sense of, um, you know, your responsibility is, is to the court and to present a view which is balanced and which is your genuinely held view, not simply relying on numbers from a company and, you know, applying some calculations. And that's, you know, that's clearly been articulated in some of the judgments, which, which, which is right. Um, 
so it's, it's, it's about striking that balance between, um, you know, it's, it's fundamentally important to recognise, I think, the management team know the business better than anyone else. So you have to draw on their knowledge, but you've got to be balanced in the way you, you, t you take on board, particularly, you know, financial projections um, to make sure that they are, they do represent a kind of balanced and genuinely held view about the, you know, the future of the business. Um, there, there's, I, I think the key really is, you know, spending time with the management team to really understand the the operations, the numbers, the recent historical performance, the current financial position, and to in in you know when looking at budgets and forecasts, challenging them, scrutinising, making sure the detail that underpins them is understood, um, and where you feel it's necessary, apply sensitivities or different cases to you know management's base case in order to represent what you what you feel the market would perceive the, the financial outlook of the company to be. Because at the end of the day, that's what your, your role is, is to estimate the value that would be achieved if the market were looking at it, i.e., you know, hypothetical buyers. Um, there's a bit of benchmarking and sort of comparisons that sometimes can be done, which, which can be really helpful, such as comparing, you know, revenue growth rates or profitability to other companies in the sector where that's, where that's doable, or looking at, prior budgets versus actual performance to see, you know, how successful management have been in, in hitting their budgets or not. And bringing all that together um, and coming to what you can kind of evidence as, as a balanced view is the key to, to putting something forward which is appropriate and, and sort of does its job in evidencing that this is the, this is the you know, a likely range of value outcome based on a, a well-balanced and considered um, set, set, set of data, if you like. Yeah. And so you you mentioned hypothetical buyers and i guess where we're looking at a relevant alternative that is perhaps say an administration with a prepackaged sale um we've seen some discussion about the use of market testing and in particular i'm thinking about the virgin active plan where there were comments that actually market testing may be of limited utility and not actually provide a reliable ev evidence as to value that could be achieved in the relevant alternative so I'm just wondering what your thoughts really are on the benefit or otherwise of using market testing for the purpose of a restructuring plan. Yeah, so that's a really interesting point because I think, you know, always with in trying to evidence value, ultimately um, a genuine market test, if that can be achieved, is a very good way of, you know, going through a process and, and evidencing that that's an achievable value. But the reality is, I think you've got to look at um, what's what's real. Um, and can you actually go through a market testing process that comes out with a reliable uh, result? And I think typically in something like a, an RP situation, um, you're in a situation where the at the point the valuer becomes involved, it becomes an exercise in estimating what an outcome would be where there's not actually a genuine ability to test the market because the, the, the plan is to go through the restructuring plan. Um, any you know, conversations or processes with potential buyers wouldn't be real. And, and I think that's the reality. And, and, and they would kind of know that. So you can go through it to get some some sort of high level benchmarks, but they can't necessarily be relied upon because they're not real transactions. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the point of, you know, what is often referred to as a desktop valuation, which essentially means um, it doesn't involve market testing. But I think we can't get away from the, the, the point that the purpose of it is to, to estimate what would happen if there was a sale process when in a situation when there naturally cannot be one. Um, you know, often there's there's a bit of a market test sort of prior 
you know, maybe the company will have been through a genuine attempt to sell, you know, within the sort of 12 months prior to restructuring plan. And because that hasn't been achieved, naturally, it goes into a more of a kind of formal restructuring situation. Or there could be some sort of less formal conversations with, 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 with you know, one or two potential buyers that have resulted in sort of indicative numbers of bids, but nothing kind of binding, nothing that got anywhere near completion. So stuff that you have to have regard for, but but have to be, you know, very careful in taking that on board as a strong indication of value because it's, you know, informal, hasn't resulted in a transaction. There's naturally between initial sort of suggestions of price and final, you know, deal values, there's often price chipping and changes to deal structures and stuff. So I think one has to be careful about how that's considered. But um I think that you know, the wider point is that when we're brought in as values to this situation, it, it's it's always after the event of where market testing is no longer a reality in most cases. Yeah. Um, and that, and that, that's kind of the point of what the, the exercise is, is here to achieve already. Jim, let's talk a little bit about opposition and arguments, because obviously that's the uh, that's a really exciting bit. And I guess we've seen increasing creditor activism on the more recent plans. And I'd just be interested if you've got any advice from your experience to companies uh, in order to try and you know minimise or, or reduce or manage that uh, in the context of the plan? And are there any further considerations uh, which you think uh, boards, management ought to bear in mind when considering evaluation in this context? And I suppose Sam and I are particularly thinking about HMRC and landlords who have got increasingly vocal recently, I suppose, and, and with, I suppose, different degrees of, of success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think look, going into a process like this, it's it's best to assume that there will be challenge because, you know, essentially creditors, their various classes of creditors, different groups are going to be compromised, and you know they are entitled to challenge. And I think it's best to assume it's very likely they will. I think some of the cases we've worked on um, have involved landlords. Um, they've been you know kind of retail type businesses where there's a, a landlord group who um you you always assume will will raise a challenge and they sometimes do it varies um one of the challenges landlords have i think is that they are you know not necessarily a connected group um and so the time involved to to get them together as a sort of a body to to put forward a strong challenge is a challenge within that itself hmrc i think uh they're you know it's an interesting one because they're essentially the probably the only creditors who is kind of there on almost every case you know, every case HMRC may be involved because they naturally are a creditor of all businesses. Um, and so that, you know, they have been um, recently, I think, buoyed by a couple of judgments that have kind of gone in their favour and given them a bit of confidence to to pursue things. And, um, you know, with this position as a sort of preferential creditor, and I think what I think what it means is, um, you know, from the valuer's perspective, but also the valuer combined with all the other you know advisors the legal advisors financial advisors but you have to kind of try and anticipate where challenges are going to come from but at the end of the day if, if, if it's genuinely held belief which it should be that the restructuring plan is better than the alternatives and the evidence is there to support that then you should be confident in the ability to defend it against challenge that's not to say challenge won't come and and the challenge might be have complexities to it but um, I, I, I think, you know, one should always be, you know, feel confident that the, the RP is the right thing to do. Um, and I think with HMRC, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. And I think um, it'll, look, it's, it's going to be fascinating over the next 
kind of phase of RPs, how that plays out. I think, you know, where we're at at the moment is there's a sort of slowly developing sort of, you know, body of case law and, and kind of set of judgments, which at each add a little bit to the to the debate. Yeah, all situations are slightly different. So um, you can use you can look at previous cases and draw some um, insight from them, but, you know, equally assess each one on its own kind of merits and, and complexities. So, um, yeah, like ch challenges is, is a key is always going to be a part of it. And, you know, there's, there's a lot at stake in these processes. And I think um, being thorough, being well considered, thinking about why the, the alternative selected is the right one, what genuinely what the value that would achieve is uh, and kind of evidencing why the various groups of creditors are better off in the RP than the alternative is, is, is key to it. But I think one has to accept the challenging part of it. Yeah, that's great, Jim. Thank you. Um, so I guess just to finish off, what are the sort of key difficulties, obstacles that you've come across in your experience today? Yeah, I think um, I was mentioned a couple. I think one, one that stands out is um, what I'd call kind of recovery pathways. So a, a lot of these RPs have been undertaken in 2022 and 2023, which I think everyone was kind of hoping and expecting would be back, like back to normal years. You know, market conditions and company performance would have recovered post COVID interruption back to a sort of, you know, steady state normality. But unfortunately, in you know many sectors, maybe most sectors, that's not the case because of all the subsequent macroeconomic challenges. You know, all the stuff we all know about inflation, interest rates, supply chain, etc. So it's it's what's really challenging is determining what, you know, for example, sales volumes for a business or a particular site or outlet or the profitability of a cash conversion what that all looks like in a genuine kind of steady state when the dust is settled from all the current macro macroeconomic challenges um and therefore what the kind of the balanced sort of mid-term outlook is sort of you know versus recent historical performance this year's performance and i think that's a challenge throughout because it naturally does have an impact on value um, and you've got to always be in 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 the mindset of what a buyer of the business would perceive. So, you know, there's an element of, you know, risk adjusting uh, expectations and, um, you know, to what degree is is opportunity versus caution in kind of pricing things um, played in. So that that's a challenge. And I think that's a function of where we are in, an, in the economy. Um, and it's something that very slowly probably un, un, unwinds itself over the next um, few years, but it's probably going to be a challenge for a while. Another one, I think, is probably you know striking the right balance between how many potential alternatives should be looked at and how much work from a from a valuation perspective should go into kind of you know, evidencing which one is more valuable than the others. Because at the end of the day, you know these are the sorts of exercises where there's not necessarily a, like a clear limit to where the the valuation work stops or where it starts actually, but needed to say, you're always on a budget in, in terms of time and cost, and you could always do more work. So it's striking that balance between, you know, how many different alternatives genuinely require their own analysis, of, you know, in respect of value to sort of see which one um, is the most valuable. It might be very obvious in some cases, it might be far less obvious in others. So that, that's, that's always a challenge as well. There's, there's multiple others, but um, those are probably the two that, that kind of jump out. 
Yeah, thank you very much, Jim. It's been really great to speak with you today. And of course, thanks very much to everyone else for listening in.